Lord Jesus, as we've prayed about every way I know how, we have come to meet with you this morning. This is yet another opportunity for you to speak to our hearts, God. May you bring your word to life. God, may may your people hear your voice this morning. Where there's a need for conviction, God, we pray bring it. Where there's a need for encouragement, God, bring it. May we become more like you as we come to your word this morning. And Lord Jesus, as always, may I decrease and you increase this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you turn to Mark chapter 12. Uh, We've been marching through the book of Mark. Uh, And the summer's been a little weird because I've been gone a couple times. And so there's kind of some a pause and we go somewhere else and then we come back. And uh, so I just kind of want to recap real quick where we've been coming into Mark chapter 12. Uh, We have been walking with Jesus from his early days of ministry and his baptism to the calling of his disciples, uh, teaching and, and miracles. And he's been praised and they've attempted to throw him off cliffs and everything in between. And now we find ourselves in Mark chapter 12 uh, in the last week of Jesus' ministry leading up to the cross. This is Jesus. He's now in Jerusalem uh, where come Friday he will be killed. We've read about Sunday where he was praised and they threw a parade, uh, the triumphal entry we often call it. And they were shouting in the streets, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were excited to see Jesus. And then on Monday, uh, Jesus did something no one expected. He walked into the temple, made himself a whip, and started chasing people out, flipping over tables, driving out anyone that was selling anything. And he challenged the priests and the people. He said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And so now the, the crowds kind of aren't sure what to do with Jesus. The Pharisees are certainly not liking him. On Monday, he comes back in and they challenge him, who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing these things? Do you know who we are? They're essentially saying to him. And so they come and they challenge him. Uh, And two weeks ago, we looked, Jesus taught this parable directly against the Pharisees. This parable of a vineyard. And he says, look, it's like God created this vineyard. He dug out the wine press. He put in the fence to surround it. He planted the vines. It's all his And then he hired some workers to come work it. And then he he paints this picture of the workers turned rebellious. And they they now said, this is our vineyard. And everyone that the master would send to them to go, hey, the master wants some grapes. The master wants some wine. This is his vineyard. Give it to him. They would beat that messenger. They would would mock them. At, At points, they would even kill them and throw their bodies out. And the master kept sending until eventually he said, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son if I send my son. And they see it as this is our moment. If we kill the son, this is all ours. Jesus very clearly saying, this is how you are treating Israel, as if it's yours and you're trying to keep God out of the front gate. He's been sending messengers and prophets to you. You've mocked them. You've beaten them. You've killed them. And Jesus would say, now he sent his son. And Jesus knows what's coming. You're going to kill him too. But he warns the Pharisees, he says, what do you think the master is going to do to those wicked servants? He will come and he'll destroy them and he'll give the vineyard to another. And the Pharisees weren't stupid. The people understood exactly what was going on. The last verse that we looked at two weeks ago, Mark 12, 12, because they knew he had said this parable against them, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. It was apparent to everyone that Jesus was calling the Pharisees out on the carpet. You have mishandled the authority that God has given you, the leadership of his people. Look at your history, the prophets you've beaten, you've killed, you haven't listened to them. And even now, you're about to kill the son that he has sent to you. And it does not go well for you. Maybe this was a wake-up call to the Pharisees. Like, look, I know what's in your heart, and let me tell you how this ends. Don't do it. But they knew that this was spoken against them. They knew that they had just lost face in front of the whole crowd. 
And so they decided to withdraw. They wanted to arrest Jesus and to kill him right there on the spot, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left and they went away. Now, they didn't leave and go away in terms of like, let's just pack it in. He beat us. Let's just go somewhere else. They left to go plot in secret. How do we take him down? He had the audacity to speak to us that way in front of our people in the very temple that like we're in charge of. We got to get this guy. And so they went away to plot. And what we're going to look at now uh, is two encounters that come directly following this where they, kinda, they think we got a way to get him. And they decide to, to come back and to challenge Jesus. But we're going to look at these two interactions. We're actually going to spend two weeks on them because we're going to look at them in two different ways, through two different lenses. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at who's asking the questions and why. Because they come to Jesus and they try to ask him some really tricky questions. We're going to look and go, what was their heart behind it? And then next week, we're going to look at Jesus' responses, at the actual teachings of Jesus, because these are some of his most important, most famous teachings. But what I want to do this week is kind of set the stage and go, why were they asking those questions? What, what was their hope? What was their purpose in coming to Jesus in the way that they did? So let's jump into this. In Mark chapter 12, 13 to 17, directly following, they're embarrassed, they're mad, they want to arrest him, but they're scared of the crowd. So they go away to plot. And then the very next verse, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him to trap him by what he said. When they came, they said to him, teacher, we know you are truthful and defer to no one. You don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought one. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they said. Then Jesus told them, give back to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the thing that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus' response. It's super tempting to jump into now, because like, it's a zinger. It's a good one. But what I want to do is kind of give some background at this point. When we read the Pharisees and the Herodians, obviously, like, oftentimes we just skip right over that because we don't really know who any of those people are. We know the Pharisees are bad guys. That's about it. But when you understand a little more, the Pharisees and the Herodians were actually enemies. They hated one another. They were constantly battling one another. The Pharisees were essentially the Jews of Jews. They were the ones who, were, who saw themselves as, we're protecting what it is to be Jewish. They were kind of the protectors of the law and of this Jewish way of life. The Herodians were sellouts. They, they followed King Herod, who was the biggest, like, Romophile. I don't know if that's a word, but you get the idea. He sold out to Rome. Whatever Rome wanted, King Herod did, because that was his way to power. Don't make waves, it's bad for business, essentially was the motto of the Herodians, and the Pharisees were trying to protect what it was to be Jewish. And so they would have looked at any Jew who was learning to speak that language and, and was so willing to pay taxes and whatever it would have been, they would have looked at them as a traitor. And so we have these two factions that normally hate one another going, hey, let's work together because we hate him even more. We found ourselves a common enemy. And so these two kind of warring factions unite to try to take Jesus out. They try to trap him with his words. And so they ask him this question. Again, we're going to look at the, the question itself more next week. But they ask him this question to try to cause him to pick sides. Who's right? Is it right to rebel against Caesar and kind of hold on to our Jewish heritage and fight for it? Or are they right and we should just roll over, show them our soft underbellies and give him whatever he wants because that's just easier. Pick one, Jesus. Now, what would happen if Jesus would have just said, this one's right, do that? He would have lost half the crowd, right? Not, not only was it just the Pharisees and the Herodians, they all had followers. Everyone in the crowd had a stake in this because they're going, wait, am I supposed to pay taxes? Or am I supposed to pick up a sword? Or like, hmm, Let's see what Jesus says. They tried to put him in a situation where no matter what he said, he lost half the crowd. 
Because remember, the only thing keeping them from arresting Jesus was their fear of the crowd. The, the crowd loved Jesus because he kind of stood up to the man and going, if we can trap him, put him in a lose-lose situation where no matter what he says, half the crowd turns against him, we can arrest him maybe even on the spot. We could take him out maybe even today. The only thing stopping them was their fear that the people loved Jesus so much they'd kind of turn on them. And so they said, how do we divide the crowd and he'll lose support and maybe we can get him, maybe even today. So they come to him and I love the way that they approach him. I don't love it, that was sarcastic. Teacher, we know you're faithful. You defer to no one for you don't show partiality but you teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then they put it even more clearly. Should we pay or should we not pay? Pick one. But they come to him in this this flattering sort of silver-tongued way. Oh, teacher, certainly you would never show partiality. You would never defer. You'd never give an answer just to make the crowd happy. They're daring him to answer here. Little side note, beware of flattery. Anyone who comes and tells you the things you you really want to hear about yourself, there should be a little red flag going off. Uh Uh-oh, what do they want? What are they trying to get? Some people are just genuinely nice and encouraging. Okay, not trying to say that. But beware of flattery. Uh, Proverbs 27.6 says this, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Right now, we had some kisses of an enemy. They were kissing up to Jesus and just going, oh, what a great teacher. You're always so honest. No way would you try to weasel out of this one, would you? We have to be careful of flattery. And Jesus saw straight through it. Uh, Mark 12, 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, I see what you're doing. He even says to them, why do you test me? I know what you're doing. You don't actually even care what answer I give. You're simply trying to trick me. I know what you're doing. Now, next week we'll look at it. Jesus doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't just take his ball and go home. He shows up and shows out. But today, just looking at the Pharisees, the Herodians, they united together because they had a common enemy in Jesus and their whole plan was how do we turn the crowds against them? How, How do we divide the people and catch this? How do we sow division among the people that we were called to lead? That was their whole plan. I would rather see the people divided so that we could take him out than see Israel unified. It's it's dangerous leadership. There's a reason Jesus spoke the parable against them that he did. It was selfish leadership. How do we use the people and their favor to get what we want? It's the exact opposite kind of leadership that we see from Jesus, but this was them. So they bring this polarizing question to him. Are you siding with the rebellious camp or the good for business camp? Pick one. Think of how polarizing this would have been to the people in the audience. This is hard for us to think about because none of us have ever seen this uh, in, on our shores. Say we had North Korean soldiers walking down the streets of Elkins. We we were now occupied territory. We would have some strong feelings, yes? We've seen it on the news happening in other places, or sometimes it's been American soldiers, wherever, and it's, it's always an over there thing. Imagine if it was here. We were occupied. Our money now had someone else's face on it. We had to pay taxes that were unfair to a government that we didn't even pick, let alone like. And now we're having, like, imagine the tension that would be going on inside of you. I think I know which side West Virginia would fall on. Do we rebel or do we just roll over? I think I know. But there would be a tension. There would be people on both sides and those people would be standing firmly on their side. And now imagine this religious leader who you've put your hope in. This guy has the answers and now they ask him this question and you're sitting there going, Is he going to side with me or is he going to side with them? Am I right or are they right? You would be invested in this answer. And the leaders knew it. And they were trying to use that against Jesus. Pick a side, Jesus. Their plan was to divide and conquer. Divide the people, conquer Jesus. 
That was their entire plan. And then we move on to this next encounter. Again, Jesus answers them masterfully, and we'll look at it next week. But then we have this second encounter. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, come to him and question him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. I'm going to pause right there. This is a weird one for us. I'm, I'm a second brother in my family. So what that's saying is if my brother married a woman, didn't have any kids, and my brother died, it was like, according to the Mosaic Law, it was my obligation to then marry his wife and have kids in his name. So we would have kids, and I would go, those aren't my kids, those are Eric's kids. They now inherit everything that was his. This was kind of like a legal obligation thing that's tough for us because we don't do inheritance this way, and we don't track genealogy this way, but to them it was hugely important And so they're going, they're just reminding Jesus of this law. You know, this is how it's done, Jesus. If a man marries, doesn't have kids, dies, his brother has to step up and have kids for him. To which everyone in the crowd would have gone, duh, we know that. Then comes the question. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be, since the seven had married her? Jesus told them, are you not deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living." You are badly deceived. Come back next week because I'm excited to hear what I'm going to teach on this because it's a doozy. Uh, So I got a big week ahead of me. But again, let's just look at some background. Who was asking the questions and why were they asking them? So the Sadducees come to Jesus and the way that the big brain theologians came up with remembering who the Sadducees are is the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a resurrection, they didn't believe in miracles, no angels, no demons, nothing supernatural. These were leaders of Israel. They actually led together on this big council called the Sanhedrin that was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. So imagine the kind of discussions that they had. I mean, you think Republican and Democrat working together are tough. You now have these Jewish people who all call God by the same name, but some say, and he's alive and he's working, and one day there's a heaven waiting for us, and the other is going, he did some good things back then, but he's done now. There's nothing waiting for us, and nothing supernatural, nothing we can't explain can happen now. They would have had some fun meetings, yeah? So now these people come to Jesus, and they say, again, buttering him up, Jesus, in the resurrection that we don't believe exists, whose wife would this, would this woman even be? They try to put him in this lose-lose situation, this hypothetical that they don't even believe can be a thing. They tried to create this impossible situation. Jesus, isn't the thought of a resurrection stupid, Jesus? Don't you agree with us, Jesus? Aren't the Pharisees idiots, Jesus? Maybe they were even thinking, if the Pharisees and the Herodians can team up against him, maybe he'll team up with us and we can make the Pharisees look stupid. I don't know. But they bring this hypothetical to Jesus, this situation that, to our knowledge, has never happened. But they said, let's just play this out, Jesus, because isn't it a stupid thing? And so they're trying to trap him with this. And here's the important part not caring what it does to the faith of the people in the crowd. They're, uh, the way that they were going about this was the same as the Pharisees, divide and conquer. Divide the people to conquer Jesus. Let me tell you, the enemy's plans have not changed. They are exactly the same today. Divide the people to conquer Jesus. We know he cannot conquer Jesus. He might even know he cannot conquer Jesus, That's not going to stop him from trying. And the way he goes about it is the same way he's always gone about it. Divide the people of God and try to rob Jesus of power. 
It is still happening in the church today. This was the thing that I think was the stench in the nostrils of Jesus. This is why Jesus opposed the Pharisees and the, the leading parties so strongly. Is basically said, you're using the people of God for your own ends. You would rather see them divided than come together in worship. You would rather be right than have them sit down at the same table together. And this was a stench in the nostrils of Jesus. I believe this is what motivated when Jesus would look at them and he would go, you brood of vipers. You're like a whitewashed tomb. And he would say these harsh things. He never said harsh things to the prostitute, uh, to the drunk, to the, to the person begging on the street. He never had a harsh word for them. But for the leaders of Israel, he was incredibly harsh at times. And I think this is what was behind it. You have been, again, back to the parable he told them, you have been given authority in the vineyard in Israel to lead well, to bring fruit to the king, but you've instead decided to see what you could get out of the deal instead. And you've decided to use the vineyard for your own gain, to use Israel, your position in Israel, and even its very people, their faith, for your own gain, for your own ends. The people of God have become a means to an end, and this was a stench in Jesus' nostrils. And the enemy is doing the exact same thing today. So I Googled something, and I was very surprised by it. I'm going to ask this question, just throw out some answers. How many Christian denominations do you think there are in the world today? Take a stab at it. 3,500. It's stupid low. Keep, like, keep going. Guys, it's like you're not even trying. 45,000. There are 45,000 Christian denominations around the world. In America alone, there are 200 denominations. When you get into some of the tribal countries and everyone puts their own little spin, tribe to tribe, like that's probably how you get up to this 45,000, which again is, it's hard to even imagine. But let's just take America. 200 denominations. And that doesn't even include all the non-denominational churches out there. That's just ones that have aligned themselves with a particular denomination. 200. Divide and conquer. And I'd say he's, he's done a pretty masterful job of it. We as a people are ready to divide. It's scary how easy it is to divide the people of God. He doesn't even have to be crafty about it. We can see it coming and we still take the bait. We have so many opportunities to divide in the church. We have to be so careful about joining what I call camps, theological camps, political camps, uh, racial camps, socioeconomic camps. There's something about us that we, as much as we kind of hate it at times, we want to have a label on us. And so whether it's a label that says Baptist or Christian Missionary Alliance or Methodist or whatever, or it says Reformed or uh, it, there's Black Church, White Church, there, I mean, all of these different things, we naturally gravitate towards getting in with a camp, putting a label on our heads. And that's who I am. And you'll hear people all the time who, who say things like, I'm a Reformed Christian. I'm a Methodist, I'm a Baptist, I'm a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's, that's our denomination for those who don't know. Whatever it may be, and we put that label before even, I'm a follower of Jesus. There's an identity that's found there and we so easily flock to these camps. Here's the danger behind it. Camps live on the extremes. Camps live in places where we're right and they're wrong. And there is no in between. There's, there's this thought today that you can't, you can't stand somewhere in the middle that's almost like a weakness. You're just too weak to choose. Instead of understanding the hardest place in the world to be is standing somewhere in the middle and going, I refuse to get pulled to the extremes because here's the truth of it. You cannot love people from the extremes. When you live in the extremes, anyone that thinks different from you is your enemy. And Jesus has made it very clear. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6. We don't fight against flesh and blood, 
but rulers, authorities, powers in the heavenly realms. Our battle is not against each other. But when we live in the extremes and you think differently from me, you become my enemy. And we divide and we divide and we divide. Even when you go inside the camps, division, 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 division. Looking at our political parties, there's not two. There's kind of two big banners, but within each of them, there's factions all over the place. The, the world does this all the time. And we as followers of Jesus are so, it's so easy to just follow in with them. I'm with these people. Those people are the enemy. They're dangerous. They're the ones. You cannot love people from the extremes. The enemy's motivation, divide and conquer. We see Jesus warring against it here from these bad leaders. But if we're not careful, we fall prey to the exact same thing today. And we cannot fulfill our mission. We cannot love people from the extremes. Francis Chan, in his book, Letters to the Church, uh, says this quote, We have a tendency to argue and divide over trivial matters when we forget hell exists. When we forget why we're actually here, it's easy to divide. Because I don't like the way you said that. I don't like that word choice. I like this word choice. This super heavy theological issue that people have been fighting over for hundreds of years. Well, I'm on this side and you're on that side. And we're going to spend all of our time writing books against each other and YouTube videos. And we're going to call out this guy and that gal. And we're going to go to war against each other. Why? Because we've forgotten that hell exists. People are dying and going to hell. What matters more than that? I don't care what theological camp you're in. I don't care what political side of the aisle you fall on. Do not lose sight. Hell is real and it is terrifying. We can't afford to divide. And we all say, but my thing isn't trivial. I hope everyone else is listening because yeah, you guys are dividing too easy, but, but my thing's not a trivial matter. It's, it's a top tier thing. How does it compare against eternity separated from your God? Is it still top tier? I don't know that it is. We are so ready to divide. We are so easy to conquer because we're looking for ways to divide. So let me ask you this question. And it's, again, I want conversation here. Are there issues worth dividing over in the church? Are there those things of going, I can't lock arms with you. We can't work together. We can't be a part of the same family. Do those issues exist? Let's start there. And then if so, what, what are they? Joe? Okay. Any church that practices opposite of what the Bible says, here's the struggle. And, the, and it's, a, it's a very real struggle. I may read the Bible and think it says one thing, and you read that same passage and think it says another, and all of a sudden, uh-oh. Like, it's, it's not, it, I don't ask this saying, it's a, it's a simple thing. What are some of those issues? What are some of those things of going, you read it this way, I read it this way, we can't, we can't continue together. We're heading in two completely separate directions. Like, what are some of those issues? Or do, or do they even exist? Is it just, nope, if somebody calls themselves a Christian, we're in. The divinity of Jesus. Okay. It was the first one on my list, too. The deity of Jesus. That Jesus is God incarnate. That's, there's a line in the sand there. If you say Jesus is anything short of that, we can't work together. Not that I hate you. Not that I'm now going to throw stones at you. But understanding that's one of those lines where we're on a separate team. If, if, you're not, if you're not with me, that Jesus is divine. The only begotten son of God. We can't play together. What else? Uh, yeah, I assume so. I'm just trying to draw them out. Not saying that she's wrong in those. Okay. The resurrection, I, I, would, I would put two things together and say the sufficiency of his death and resurrection for our salvation. Paul even goes to a point in 1 Corinthians 15 of going, 
if the resurrection's not a thing, basically, if the Sadducees are right, everything we're doing is futile. It's worthless. We're wasting our time. Even to the point he goes, we're to be pitied more than any man in all of creation. That, that is a separating issue. Are we saved purely by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is he, not only he was God, is he still alive and reigning? If somebody comes and says, yeah, what Jesus did on the cross is good, but you also have to earn it. You also have to like work for your salvation. I'm gonna go, mm, time out. We're talking about a different gospel and I don't know that we can partner together. These are our core foundational issues. Are there any others? The concept of marriage, okay? This is one we gotta wrestle with. Is that a, we can't play in the same sandbox issue? Because some would say that homosexuality is fine. The things in scripture that talk about it are simply cultural. Culture's different now, so therefore, Anybody can marry anybody. Some would hold, we as a church would hold that marriage was designed to be one man, one woman, no other options, okay? If someone believes differently on that issue, can we no longer work together? Are, are they not a believer because they see that issue differently? Joe, you got Sure. Well, let me ask this question. And again, these are hard questions. I'm not asking these going, come on, guys, these are softballs. Is that person no longer a brother or a sister? They believe that Jesus is God. They believe that only through his death on the cross can we enter into relationship with God. And, and because of his resurrection, we've been raised to new life. They would say yes and amen, yes and amen. But, we, but they would also say we believe that uh, two men can be married together. Are they no longer a follower of Jesus? The, these, are, these are hard waters we're swimming in. Okay. So let me ask you this question. These are healthy conversations. And even in this room, some of you, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to land in a different place than you land. Some of us would land in the same camp. Some of us would not. I refuse to let it divide. But also healthy conversation is a good thing. And let's get underneath some of this, because David, let's take what you just said. It's the spirit of God speaking. And is, is God leading you in that direction toward that belief, whatever it is, that again, I would say it's part of our statement of faith and everything that marriage is between a man and a woman. That, that is what our church believes. And so I would look at someone and I would say, I think you're in error. The question we're asking is, does that mean you're no longer a follower of Jesus and I can't play with you? We can't, we can't lock arms and do this together. So what if somebody says, they would align more with the Sadducees. I love Jesus, death and resurrection, but I don't believe that God does miracles anymore. I don't believe that God still speaks anymore. We just have his word, just read his word and do what it says. 
I mean, this is a massive group of American believers who would fall into this camp, who I would, and again, I'm not speaking for all of you. I'm not even speaking for like our church because we don't have a doctrinal statement necessarily on this. I believe God still speaks and moves. I believe God still wants to move in miraculous ways. I would look at them and I would say, you're in error. I would look at them and say, what you believe is counter to scripture. The same thing I would say to somebody who says, a man and a man can be married or a woman and a woman can be married. I would say the same thing to them. Is one a believer and one's not? Is This is the issue. Where do, where do we divide and what can we overlook? I, again, never saying this is a simple thing, church. Go ahead, Joe. Sure. Yeah, there's a, uh, you guys may have heard we had an election in November. Um, leading up to it, there was a lot of controversy, a lot of pick a side. Uh, what camp do you fall in? I mean, and here's the thing, when it comes to an election, you, at some point you have to check a box, you know what I mean? And say, I'm in with this one, I'm in with that one, like kind of thing. But I had conversations with a number of brothers and sisters who said, how can you be a Christian and be on that side? How can you be a Christian and be a Republican? How can you be a Christian and be a Democrat? It was both sides. It wasn't just one side throwing stones. But I mean, again, they were going, if you would vote along different lines, you cannot be a follower of Jesus. And I just had red flags going everywhere, going, that cannot be our dividing line. But they, there was this eagerness even to divide. Who's right and who's wrong? Who's in and who's out? And that's the spirit of what what's so dangerous that we have to be so careful of. David, go ahead. Yes. Yes. Division became the cool thing to do, yeah. Right. 
Yeah. I, and I, I agree. There's a reason why in John 17, what you brought up, where Jesus says, by your unity, they'll know that I have sent you. We read that and we go, that's kind of dumb. Shouldn't it be by the miracles that you do, by the teaching that you give? But Jesus, he saw what was coming down the pipe. Obviously, he knew what was happening in that very day. And he said, if you can remain unified when there's all of these points of division, and it is so tempting to take your ball and go home and to say, I'm right, you're wrong, I don't want to talk to you anymore. He saw it and he said, the thing that will set you apart is your desire to remain unified. There would come points, I mean, we would see, Paul would teach on it and go, these are sheep among wolves, these are not, or excuse me, wolves among sheep, these are not brothers who are coming and are teaching these things. He would say these things that they're teaching, they undermined, salvation through what Jesus has done on the cross. They are not our brothers. But yet we still find all this teaching. We're going to look at, some, at a couple things that Paul teaches. Crying for unity. Because if we can remain united, even in the midst of having different opinions and stances and views, the world will take notice. Because as we've seen, the world has an inability to unite. And we of the church have followed suit with them. If you want it to be easy and clean, you've picked the wrong thing. Uh, (laughs) This ain't easy and clean. There's a lot that we have to interpret in here, and you may interpret it differently than me, and there has to come that point where we're going, I love you. We agree on these things. We disagree here. Let's just put that to the side and keep moving forward. Let's look at what Paul has to say to Timothy. Uh, This is the end of Paul's life. This is one of the last letters that he writes to Timothy, who he would call his son in the faith. And he's trying to encourage him. He goes forward. And here's what he says, 2 Timothy 2, uh, 22. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. The Lord's slave must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. 
Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. So listen, Paul's saying, look, worst case scenario. This isn't just, oh, you think communion's this and they think communion's that. These are brothers that have been trapped by the enemy, ensnared by his traps. And Paul says, so get the heck out of there, Timothy. Throw rocks at them as you leave. No, he says, instruct them gently. Why? Because perhaps God will grant them repentance. Because maybe, Timothy, you'll beat them over the head with the truth enough that they'll finally be on your side. No. Instruct them with gentleness and allow God to do his work of bringing them to repentance. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, here's what division does. Division unifies us against them. We pick a side, we pick a camp, and now it's us and them. We're right, they're wrong. Here's what we have been called to do. We've been called to unite for them. Whoever them might be, the people across the aisle, the lost and dying world, the church members that we just can't get along with, we have been called to come together for the good of them. Jesus tells again, John 17, be united. Why? That the world will see that I've sent you. For the good of the world, be united with each other. Not divide and conquer. Unite for their good. Not us versus them, us for them. Division unified the, the Pharisees and the Herodians against Jesus. The Sadducees were united to overcome anyone, quote, stupid enough to believe in the resurrection, and both got their hands slapped. Even if Jesus was in a camp with one of them, I think he still would have slapped their hand and gone, what are you doing? Why would you stand up here and intend to divide? To prove that you're right, to make yourself feel better, to get yourself more power, more authority, whatever it may be, you have not been called to divide. You have been called to unify. He would say this to them as leaders. He would say this to the crowd. What are you doing? Why are you looking to be divided? You've been called to unity. Titus 3, 9 to 11. Again, another man that Paul uh, was discipling in his faith and in his leadership. And he says this, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Hear how strong this is. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be, excuse me, sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. A divisive person, warn them once, warn them a second time. After that, literally, cut them off. Be, that's how dangerous this is. That's what a top-tier thing, this divisiveness was in the church, where Paul goes, maybe at first they just don't know any better. Warn them the second time, this is getting serious. And the third time, we can't, we can't move forward together. If you are bent on dividing, we cannot minister together, have nothing to do with them. And listen to these strong words. Such people are warped, sinful, self-condemned because we've been called to be people of unity. We've been called to be one church, one body, working together for each other's good. And when divisiveness is sown between us, we're called to call it out, warn it once, warn it twice, and be done. Unity is too valuable. Unity is that important that unity is worth dividing over. Sounds weird but we have been called to unity. The king does not take division in his kingdom lightly. We have to choose. Are we going to focus on all the opportunities we have to divide, and they are many, or are we going to choose to focus on what it is that actually unites us? Paul, one last passage. 
in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility, gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Paul's speaking in divided times, and he's going, don't miss it. You've been called to unity. One faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father, one church. Focus on the thing that unites us, and I truly believe all those divisions will pale in comparison. How are we going to figure out what things are, are top tier enough to say we can't move forward together? I think it comes through focusing on unity. My desire is to unify with you. My desire is to move forward. But as I desire that, I realize this issue is heading us down two completely separate paths. That, I think that's how we're going to find those things. That's how we're going to realize, you know what? Somebody believes this on this issue. I believe this. If my desire is to unite with them because they are following the same Lord as me, we'll figure it out. If they're following a different Lord, that will come to light as well. But we are called to desire unity. One faith, one body, one baptism, one Lord, one church. It should take more to force our arms apart. It should take so much more. I have been convicted just preparing for this of going, Lord, why am I so ready to divide. Here's what it comes down to for me, because I really like being right. It sounds stupid and petty, and it is. It's easy to divide because it means I'm right and you're wrong. That, here's the heart matter of it. What that means is that's how little you mean to me. <laughs> Ouch. That's what it really comes down to. I will divide with you because I'd rather feel big and right than be united with you, than have a bond of love and peace and unity with you. I'll choose feeling right instead. That is sinful to my core. And I think all of us have something similar. Yours may have a different flavor to it. Why are we so drawn to division? And let's call it what it is, sin divisiveness. Wouldn't I rather partner with the king and his chosen family? Doesn't it make more sense? It's certainly what we're called to. So as we sing this last song, we're just going to be singing about the goodness of God. Again, focusing on what it is that unites us. But I'm going to ask you just in stillness of your own heart, would you be praying, God, why am I so drawn to division? We all are. It's a natural, sinful thing. It's a human nature thing. What is it in me that is so easily drawn? And then, Lord, would you weed it out? Help me to focus on what it is that unites us together, that we could move forward as a church.